This morning we are returning to our study of the Gospel of John, uh, and we're going to be in chapter 13 this morning. We're going to consider verses 1 through 20. We want to just uh, pray. Well, Father, we do come before you this morning. We come to the throne of grace because we've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus and his atoning death for our sin. Lord, we ask for your continued grace this morning to enable us to receive, to believe, and to do what your word would teach and reveal to us this morning. We pray that you would bind the enemy from our church, bind the enemy from our marriages, from our families, bind the enemy from all uh, those forces that are on the outside coming at us, Lord. Strengthen us in your word, we ask this morning. This morning, we declare Jesus Christ to be the center of our worship, and we pray now that this time would be pleasing to you. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 13, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 20. Uh, Many uh, uh, preachers would stop at verse 17, uh, and some go through 20. I'm going to go through 20. But also note in your worship folder that I was going to pick up at 21 next week. I'm actually going to go through 20 this week, but start next week at 18. So it's kind of, there'll be a bit of an overlap uh, just for context sake. So uh, Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. 
This is God's Word for us this morning. Some of you might be able to point to a moment in time when suddenly you believed. Like a moment when you knew Jesus. A moment when you went from unbelief to faith. Still others of us maybe have grown up in church, maybe have... um, Uh, been uh, discipled well by our parents, and we can't remember a a time when we did not have faith in Jesus. I've had several conversations with Christians who, uh, upon reflection, when they look back at their lives, they are born-again, blood-bought believers now, but when they look back upon their lives, they say that they can see that the hand of God was always on them, that the hand of God was always choosing them, was always protecting them, always providing for them. Long before the moment when they when they knew and understood they, that they went from unbelief to faith, but now that they have faith, they, they look back on their life and they say, oh, God was there then and there and there and there. He had his hand on me. He was saving me. He was calling me to himself. And it feels as though if all along they had been saved and chosen for eternal life. Well, because in reality they had. Because before the foundations of the earth, God chose us in Christ Jesus, right? When our passage this morning, the evangelist, the apostle John, he's, he has seen the cross. He's witnessed the resurrection. And he's telling us this story of Jesus, knowing now what he didn't know then. He is, he's explaining this passage from the perspective of what he had seen and experienced at the cross at the resurrection, and he's looking back on this moment as he experienced it and communicating it to us from that perspective. This is what I know now that I didn't know then, right? So that's that. I want us to keep that in mind uh, as we look through this passage. And what John knows now is that Jesus obeyed God, fully knowing the pain and humiliation that he was about to face. John now knows that Jesus' motivation was love for God and love for his chosen people. John now knows the magnitude of Jesus, the word made flesh, the light of the world's posture of humility. He knows the the impact and the greatness of what this, this event was that we're looking at, just how big it was that the great and holy and right God came and stooped himself in such a low, low position And that his motivation was love, but his posture was humble. He's looking at this in this, having seen the fullness of what this means. And he's looking back on this and describing it to us, what he knows now that he didn't know then. Let's look at at verse 1 through the first part of verse 4 more closely. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus came, Uh, when Jesus knew that this hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's brother, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God, was going back to God, and he rose from supper. God's love for the world, see, here is according to foreknowledge. This is what John is communicating to us, that God's love for the world was according to foreknowledge, those he knew. But it's not that God looked down the tunnel of time and learned anything. 
It's not that God has looked down the tunnel of time and learned that at some point in life that Drew Vanderveen would turn in faith to him. It's not like he's learning something about what is about to happen or what may happen. It's not like the possibilities are out there endless and if, if the right people come along that this one is going to be saved. It's not that he's looking down the tunnel of time and knowing it. It's foreknowledge. It is that, that those whom he foreknew, he foreordained to be conformed to his image. And so we might be thinking about this whole idea of God so loved the world. Well, God so loved the world only in so much as he loved those in the world that he had called to eternal life and he called them out of the world that they were in. So when, when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, it is that God so loved those who were in the world and he loved them so much that he called them out of it, right? That's how much he loved those in the world that he called them out of it. Those whom he foreknew, he foreordained to be conformed to his image. He only loved the world insofar as, as those that he called, he foreordained to eternal life, and he calls them out of the world, creating in himself and for himself a new people, a people who live in the world, but they are chosen out of it for his purposes and for his glory. Verse 2 tells us that he loved them to the end. That this was his motivation, was love. He loved them to the end. In one sense, those whom God set his electing love upon, he loved them uh, eternally and he preserved them for eternity. It makes me think of, of Romans 8, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in another sense, when he says he loved them to the end, this, this loving to the end means that he loved them with an ultimate condescending love. He loved them to the end. As my pastor used to say uh, when we lived in Astoria, Astoria, he used to say, God loved us to the uttermost when we were in the guttermost. And that's the idea. This is the ultimate condescending love to come deep and love these people to the end with the ultimate end for them. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is condescending love. It's great love that he would come and love those who were dead in their trespasses, those who were in the guttermost. He loved them to the uttermost, all the way to the end. You see, to the end of the age, yes. And to the end, this ultimate condescending love. I think about this, he loved us when we hated him. He loved us when we were opposed to him. He loved us when we didn't want him, when we rejected him, when we despised him. He loved us to the end and he made us alive together with him. Jesus, knowing our frame, knowing our inability, knowing the cost to himself, knowing the glory of the Father, took on human frailty and he was motivated by love to save those whom the Father had appointed to eternal life, never to let go of them even all the way to eternity. 
Jesus, knowing that the betrayal was about to happen, also knew that his life was not in the hands of the betrayer ultimately. But as the co-eternal, co-creator, God the Father had given Jesus authority to lay down his life for the ones he had come to rescue and the ability to take it up again, purchasing for them eternal life. So motivated by love, Jesus coming, condescending to us, motivated by love, loved his own out of the world and to the end. This has become important when you see what it is that Jesus is about to, as he says, do to them. He's about to do something to them. You know, when you think about serving someone, you think that, that, that we come to serve for them or do something for them. But Jesus uses clearly this word, do you know what I've done to you? What I have done to you. I've done something to you. I've transformed you. I've changed you. I've cleansed you, like really cleansed you. This is what he's about to talk about here. So he rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe, the, uh, wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, as we have talked about, is the hero of the Scriptures. And so far we've seen that the hero of the Scriptures did not come in on a war horse as they had supposed he would. He comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, lowly, rather than on this war horse. Rather than coming in regal attire befitting of a king, here Jesus takes off his outer garments and dons the attire of the lowliest of slaves. The disciples of Jesus, they of course would travel by foot. You know, you can imagine what they walked through. They walked through dirt, the leavings of livestock, the feet would have been the filthiest part of their body, right? This is the filthiest part. And as we looked at chapter 12 and we saw that Mary had stooped down to, to wash Jesus' feet, right? And we talked about that as being the, the lowliest of slaves. It was the lowliest of slaves who got to, who had foot duty. Other slaves had other duty. Could you imagine being a slave and you're in a group of slaves? And they say, so what is your job today? I got foot duty. You are the lowest of the low. Even among slaves, you're at the bottom of the heap. You've got foot duty. So Mary says, my worth is nowhere near this king's, right? As he's, she sees Jesus in chapter 12, she gets down there and takes the lowest of low positions and she anoints Jesus' feet. But here, in, in a posture of humility, Jesus takes on the clothing, he takes on the posture, he takes on the position of the lowliest slave. And what's even more amazing here is that Jesus esteems his servants not any lower than himself. Jesus gets low, lower than his own servants, lower than the people that should regard him as king and lord and master. Jesus gets down in the dirt and gets down to the filth and the bottom of where these people are. Jesus, though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is what Jesus 
is doing here. Now look at Peter's response. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter's response here is akin to this. God forbid that my Lord and Master should touch my filth. God forbid that my Lord and Master should ever touch my filth. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you remain unclean and are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are washed by me, you are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. You don't understand this now, but afterwards you will. John knows now what he didn't know then. This ceremonial cleansing here was, was not unlike the Old Testament rite of purification, right? It only pointed to the ultimate cleansing through Jesus Christ. This foot washing anticipates the cross of Jesus. It is an anticipation of the cross. Because notice what, what Jesus says here. Unless you get washed by me, you have, you're hopeless. There's no cleansing, right? And he's not necessarily talking just about this idea of this foot washing here. He's talking about what is soon to take place. That unless you come to the cross, unless you come to where I died for your sin, you will not be clean. And then he says, but you are cleansed, right? Because he anticipates, he knows that these are going to believe and, and follow him. And he knows that they have already believed, that they have faith, that God has deposited by grace, faith in these. And they are uh, going to, to, uh, to go to the cross. They're going to uh, appropriate Jesus' atoning death for them. No one can have part of the kingdom of God unless through repentance and faith they come to the cross of Jesus Christ and they have their sins cleansed by the blood of the lamb that God sent for the rescue of his chosen people. This morning, this week, as I was praying through this, I kept thinking, how much am I like Peter? Especially when it comes to sin in my life. And how much are any of you and all of you like Peter? Do we think that the Lord is shocked somehow by our filthiness? So that we hide the truth that we've stepped in the filth of the world and we've somehow gotten it on us, but yet we won't go to him and confess that sin and say, wash me clean once again, Lord. I've stepped in the world and I need cleansing. Often we're hiding that. We won't be honest. We hold back our confession of sin, right? Because we think that, oh Lord, I don't want to expose this to you. I don't want to expose who I am to you. We hold back confessing our sins to him. In John's first epistle, he writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then the best part, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why would we hold back from going to the Savior and confessing our sins? Are we like Peter? I think Peter's first thought is the gut reaction. You shall never wash my feet. You shall never know the filthiness that is in me. You are pure and holy and right and good and true. And I have failed and I cannot come before you because I'm such an utter failure. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. 
If you don't come in this humble submission, in this humble confession, you have no part of who I am. Well, Simon Peter, being the the go-getter kind of guy he is, Lord, not, not my feet only, but also wash my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. For she knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus says here that his cleansing that he's about to do at the cross is a once and for all cleansing. Peter, if you are in me, you are clean. If the atoning death of the cross, you believe and by faith, you are clean. The only thing that remains, Peter, he would say, is the stain of the world. The things that you have stepped in. The residual sin of your heart needs cleansing. But if you're washed in me, though you will get stained as you, as you live in this world that I've called you out of, my cleansing has made you fit for the kingdom, right? And then he says, but not everyone, not everyone, those I have chosen. My sacrifice is sufficient for those that I have chosen. You might remember from last Sunday, Jesus' cleansing is not merely making an offer to salvation for all people, but to actually secure salvation for a specific group of people. Jesus is reiterating that again here. Not all are clean, but those who I have called out of the world, those who I came and laid my life down for, those I have really secured their cleansing forever. You are clean. I declare you clean, right? You are clean by faith, by the grace given to you by God. You have faith and you have been cleansed. Remember all throughout the Bible, right? We think about what is accounted to righteousness, faith. By faith, Abraham was accounted righteous. He believed he's clean. Now, Abraham made a lot of mistakes after that, didn't he? Even after God declared him righteous, he made lots of mistakes. He walked in the filth of the world. But he didn't need to be totally cleansed. He was cleansed by the love of God and by his grace. But he still stepped in it. Still needed to have the world washed off of him. But Jesus secures a salvation for a specific group of people. And Jesus, armed with the foreknowledge of God's foreordination of eternal life, also foreknows those who will remain in their sins. That's a tough thing for us to probably accept, isn't it? Is that God foreordains, foreknows those who he's called out of the world to eternal life. But he also knows and foreknows those by name who will remain in their sins forever. I'm thankful to, the, to our God that it is not mine to know that answer to that. I would ask you this. Are you, as you sit here today, foreordained to eternal life? Or are you foreordained to eternal damnation? Well, I want to tell you this, that I nor anyone else in here can answer that question for you this morning. None of us can answer that question for you this morning. But if you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ this morning, there's good news. See, if you believe and you repent in Jesus Christ right now, as you sit right here, you were foreordained and elected to salvation by God in eternity past. If today you repent and believe. If 
you are here this morning and you reject the truth of the gospel, if you have rejected it and you reject it again and again, I plead with you to be reconciled unto God. I pray that God would grant you repentance and faith before it's too late. This is another thing that I don't know and that you don't know and that I'm also thankful for is that for your sake, I really hope that it's not already too late. I don't know when it's too late for you. I don't know when your heart has been hardened to the point. And I don't, I don't even know exactly this, that you're going to get home today. I pray you all get home safe. But I'm saying I don't know the answer to that question, that, that you are in the hands of holy and righteous God. And so I plead with you today that if you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ's atoning death for you, I hope that you do it today because the day may be the last day. This may be the only time you have. Let us move forward as he explains what it was that he has done to them. When he had washed their feet and he put on his outer garments, verse 12, and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I don't often talk about myself in a sermon, but today I'm going to just a little bit. Because when I was a little kid, I would play basketball at my grandparents' house a lot. And I could seldom convince my younger brother to join in with me. So I had to do it alone. I had to play alone. And so I would try to make it interesting to myself. Because I had nobody, he wouldn't play with me. I'd conjole him. I would even like kind of bully him a little bit. And still sometimes he would refuse. And so I would go out there and I'd play by myself. And so to make it interesting, I would invent these scenarios. I would invent scenarios where I would imitate the style of my heroes of the game, you know. And so, and this is going to age me because I'm going to tell you these people's names and some of you might not even know them. But, you know, I would try to dribble the ball like Jeff Petrie only because he had my same first name, right? And I would um, try to take a sky hook like Kareem, you know, being a short guy. I didn't have, I didn't have that. But I would try to imitate Kareem and I would try to do reverse layups like Dr. J, right? And so... I, I would sit there and try to, to imitate these guys, these heroes of the game. Well, Jesus here is telling the disciples, imitate what I have done to you by doing it to one another, right? Now, see, these heroes of the basketball game were not really heroes at all, were they? They were just gifted athletes, but these gifted athletes were not motivated to play their game by love for me. These gifted athletes did not come and humble themselves and take the lowest position for my sake, that they might serve me somehow. No, they, they, they played the game maybe for the love of the game at one point, but probably later on for the love of the dollar, right? But Jesus here is saying, I'm the hero of the Bible story, right? I am the hero of this book. And like our heroes that fight fires for us, 
that put out fires? Do they fight fires for glory and for money? No. They fight fires because they lay themselves down in humility to serve others. Uh, lots of them, police officers, many people in the, in the front lines in the military, uh, they would do this out of love and commitment and humility. They come and serve and lay themselves down for the sake of others. But Jesus is more ultimate than that in, in his service to us, isn't he? He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the majesty on high. And he condescended to come down and just be human. That, that's condescension enough, isn't it? That he came to be one of us. Well, not only just become one of us, here he became the lowest of us. Even lower than the lowest of the low of us in serving them. He came on this rescue mission in humility, laying himself down, laying his rights as God in the flesh, laying it down and being a servant. And he says here, this is the purpose for what I have done, is that you would imitate me, that you would imitate me, that you would be motivated by the same things I'm motivated by, motivated by love, that you would take a posture of humility with one another. Esteem one another greater than yourself. Let love be your motivation. Romans 12, 9 through 10 tells us, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is what Jesus says this example is for. It's for you to, to do as I did. Imitate me. Imitate what I have done. Looking backward upon the cross of Jesus, we must imitate the love of God in Christ toward others in a sacrificial posture of humility. See, there was no thing beneath the Savior in service to us. Nothing was below him to do in rescuing us. I remember a time, and Heather will remember this guy, he came to me and the church was... was uh, Things had just transitioned and I was just newly appointed the, the, the lead pastor. This guy comes to me and he says, Jeff, I can transform the church for you. I am a talented musician. I can preach. I have uh, served in youth ministry for X number of years and I took this youth ministry from like five to 10 kids and I made it 50 within a year. I can do all of these things for you. And as I sat there, I said, before I put a microphone in your hand, can I ask you one question? And he says, yes, what's that? I said, can you clean the toilet? And he says, what are you saying? I said, I don't care what kind of talent you have. I don't care what kind of ability you have, but can you take the lowest position? Can you serve this body in humility? Then you can do all these other things. But first, you must take the lowest of the low positions. I said, so what if you're in church and the toilet backs up? Because he didn't like my answer to that question, right? And I could see that on his face. So what do you do if the toilet backs up? What are you going to do? Well, that's what the congregation uh, members are for. I said, well, the congregation members are there for you to serve them. So if you know that the toilet is clogged, you go clean it. 
That's what you do. That's the position of a servant. That's the position of every Christian, isn't it? There should be nothing that is below us. Nothing too low that we might do to show and express the love of God in Christ Jesus for each other. Nothing is beneath us. Nothing is too low. I've heard people say to me sometimes, well, pastor, you ought not to be doing this, this, or this. I don't know about that. I don't know if that's true. I think I ought to be doing those things because I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and that which accords with godliness. That is, you know, uh, Paul's, Paul's letter to Titus has become like the, the, uh, the, the, the centering uh, focus for my whole life and ministry. I am a servant of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and that which accords with godliness. That's my position. Whatever that means. If it means me cleaning a toilet, vacuuming a floor, setting up a, a, a worship service, that's what I am called to do. There's no thing that was below our Savior in service. And I'm not trying to brag upon myself. I'm just saying that that is, is, is who we are. We were joking this morning, Katie and I, about, you know, this is a message on humility. And I was jokingly, I said, yes, I am humble. I have a badge. Would you like to see it, right? Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about real, true, sacrificial um, humility. Where does that come from, though? I don't think sacrificial humility cannot come to any of us unless there be love in your heart, unless you're motivated by love like Jesus was. And I think that's why uh, John emphasizes this, that he loved them to the end, that he loved them to the uttermost, that he went as low as he needed to go. And if he had to go lower than that, if there was such a thing, he'd have gone there too, right? And he took on shame that he didn't deserve to, for us, right? The shame of the cross. The shame of being called a blasphemer when he knows it wasn't, that was not him. He's not a blasphemer. But he took on the shame of being called and labeled a blasphemer, a thief, a liar, a drunkard. How many things was Jesus named that he is not? For our sake, because he was motivated by love. There was nothing uh, beneath Jesus to do. And he says for us, don't let anything be below us. And I would ask us this, are, are, are we more worthy of dignity than that of Jesus Christ? I, I have even had brothers and sisters say to me, well, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't think I should do that. I'm not called to that. I'm more gifted to do X, Y, Z. Well, no, you're called to do that. Whatever it is, you're called to lay it down and, and, and take the lowest spot that you might serve your brothers. And Jesus says, I'm sending you guys out. So he kind of is ending this passage with this idea that I'm going to send, I'm going to send you out. Not all of you. There's one who's going to betray me. I'm sending you out. Are you greater than the, the message, the messenger who's sending you? Are you greater than he? There's no servant greater than his master. Do what I do. Imitate me as you serve one another. And he says, knowing this, if you know this, you will be blessed in suffering humiliation and in lowly service. You will be blessed in suffering humiliation and lowly service if you do this to one another. Can you say what the Apostle Paul says? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or... 
Are we jockeying for position and status amongst one another? Are, or are we doing Romans 12 and trying to outdo one another in taking the lowest position? I want to serve you. Let me get there first. I want to serve you. Let me get there before you get there. Or say Jesse and I are here thinking of serving somebody and he and I are in a race to try to get to Becky because he wants to be the first to serve her, right? That's, that's the idea. Outdoing one another and doing good. So, are we jockeying for position? Are we jockeying for status? Or are we humbly imitating our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with one another? Jesus says in verse 18, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus says to the disciples, I'm sending you out into service to live a life motivated by a posture, by, by a heart of love and a posture of humility for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Among you soon, one is going to betray me. This too, he says, was foreordained by the Father. But he's encouraging them here. Continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. Because when you go to serve your brothers and sisters, guess what? You too will be rejected. You will be rejected and betrayed even by some of those that you serve. You will be, as he was. But this is the sovereign will of God, according to the scriptures. So he's saying, remain steadfast. Remain steadfast in your imitation of me, Jesus would say. I don't know about you, but I think we all need some help in that area in taking the lowest spot in serving one another. But when we are reminded of the cross, when we go back to the cross and we look at what Jesus has done for us, when we remember what this foot washing was about, it was that God in love sent his son who took the lowest of the low position to serve us as a slave. He came and put himself in a position of a slave that we might be made free. What an amazing truth. If we remember that, when we see one another, and we say, well, Christ died for this person, I too can lay down my rights and my privileges for them. I want to imitate Jesus. And you know, we are what Jesus says we are, right? We are what Jesus says we are. We are forgiven. We are positionally called righteous in his name, right? We are positionally in him. We are what he says that we are. And yet, at the same time, we need to practically be working that out, right? We are no less righteous when we fail but if we are confessing our sin to him if we come before him in humble submission to him we don't say what peter says lord you will never wash me no we come say this is where cleansing comes from i'm going back to this place i'm going to confess my sin to him because i'm as clean as i'm ever going to be but i have stepped in some things in this world this week I've stepped in some things and I need my feet washed again. The world is on me. 
I need the world washed off of me. He's called me out of the world, but I live in it, right? I'm not of it, but I live in it. And because I live in it, I get the filth and the stain of the world on him. I need to come to him and say, Lord, wash me clean. And the scripture told us that he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let us remember that as we serve one another this week, this month, this year, each day. Uh, Let us now take a moment of silence just to uh, have the word of God have its way in us, and then we will sing the doxology and pray ourselves out. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his sacrificial love for us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart motivated by love, a posture of humble service to one another for the sake of the faith of of one another, that we would serve one another, that you would help us uh, become who it is that you're, you're calling us to become. And in the meantime, may we just imitate you, imitate what you've done until we become actually uh, those kinds of servants, Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.